It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Money for Lunch. Good to have you here. You know, I was, uh, what was it? I was uh, thinking about an old friend of mine named Stephen Covey, a uh, New York Times bestselling author, and uh, just uh, some of the things that I learned from him. I didn't know him super well, just uh, got to hang out with him and his son a few times. Uh, but the number one thing that I remember from Stephen is his uh, idea if you will, his quote, uh, his strategy, seek first to understand, then to be understood. First, seek first to understand, then to be understood by Stephen Covey. All right. Having uh, said uh, that, let's just get the party started with our guest today, Francis Jackson. Francis Jackson is an attorney who specializes in disability law for those seeking veterans disability benefits and social, social Security Disability Benefits. A founding partner of Jackson McNichol, he has been featured on NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox network affiliates around the country. He most recently appeared as a guest of Ben Glass on the Consumer Advocate Show discussing benefits for veterans and Social, social Security Disability Benefits and how his practice allows him to make a difference in the lives of people facing disability. He has also been quoted in USA Today and is listed in Cambridge Who's Who. Mr. Jackson was honored by the National Academy of Bestselling Author with a Quilly Award in September of 2012 for his contribution as a joint author to the Amazon bestselling book, Protect and Defend, where he wrote about protecting one's rights to veterans' disability compensation. In 2017, Mr. Jackson was inducted into America's Most Trusted Lawyers for his outstanding work in the area of disability law. Francis Jackson, welcome back. Thanks so much, Bert. It's always nice to have a chance to be here and chat with you. Absolutely, and uh, we're uh, you know we were talking right before the show, and you're and you're uh, uh, you're fighting a little bit of a cold, so uh, thanks for the extra effort, and uh, you sound good. <laughs> well, I hope let's hope it continues. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, listen, I wanted to ask you this right off the bat. How have our wars and our veterans changed with the wars in the Middle East? Well, Bert, they've, they've changed pretty dramatically. You know, we, uh, you, you and I have talked quite a bit about the VA, and I, I thought it might be useful for us to, to talk some about the, the background here. You know, we've, we've got really an unprecedented situation with these long-running wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. And this is really the first major war that's been fought exclusively by our all-volunteer forces. Uh, as you'll recall, prior to the, the early 70s, we had the draft, and in conflicts like World War II and Korea and even Vietnam, uh, a lot of folks were draftees, but that's no longer the case. Now we have this all-volunteer force, which is about 40% minorities. And 
you know, the the uh, the conflicts that they've been involved in, other than these ones in the Middle East, have been much smaller and much shorter. You know, the, the first Gulf War in 91 was only a little over 30 days of sustained bombings and 100 hours of ground combat, and that was it. And the, the conflicts in the in the Balkans and Grenada and Panama and Lebanon, none of those involved any significant deployment of forces for any extended period. In contrast, you know, these uh, problems in the Middle East have been going on for almost 20 years now, and these are the first ones in which uh, U.S. service personnel have... Uh, undergone multiple deployments. And that doesn't sound like a big deal. Okay, you know, they're in the service, they get deployed. But it increases the risk of a veteran suffering post-traumatic distress, post-traumatic stress disorder by about 50%. And about 45,000 veterans and active duty personnel have committed suicide over the last six years. So it's it's not a small thing is repeated deployments. A lot of times these folks don't don't get adequate uh, time at home in between to kind of recover and restore themselves. The the Army's rule of thumb is that you should have at least two days back in the States for every day spent in a combat zone. And that just hasn't been happening with the multiple deployments that a lot of these folks have had. In in addition to that one thing that has never really happened before is the armed forces are using the reserves as an operational reserve, uh, meaning they've been interspersing reserve units with uh, full-time combat units. And so reserve folks haven't really been reserves in the the sense that we tend to think about it. They've been going into uh, active combat sometimes in in repeated deployments. And the other thing that has really really made a difference here in terms of how the the veteran population uh, exists, if you will, and how it uh, impacts the need for care, think about this. In World War II, if you were wounded, you basically had a one chance in, or two chances in period surviving. About a third of all combat wounded in, in World War II died. Wow. In our, yeah, it's pretty significant. And it, it improved some in Vietnam. We had you know, helicopter rescue and some other things, and we got it up to about almost uh, uh, three to one. Uh, you know, So it was about one in four that didn't make it. But in the Middle East conflicts, uh, because of the, the nature of the conflicts and where the um, casualties are occurring and much better medical care on the ground, it's about 15 to 1. So out of every 16 people wounded, 15 of them are likely to survive. And so we have a much higher proportion of folks who've been wounded one way or another um, who have survived and are part of our veterans community, um, many of whom need ongoing health care for their problems. The other thing that's been um, particularly different with the uh, veteran population now is that these wars are the first ones in which women have been 
frequently and directly exposed to combat. You know, we, we use certainly uh, in various roles in World War II in particular, Max and Waves and other groups, but women are now almost 18% of the entire U.S. military force, and one of the things that that brings with it is the risk of sexual problems. Um, about 15% of the women serving in Iraq and Afghanistan have reported sexual trauma during their deployments. So it's it's a different population. And one of the uh, one of the other things that, that makes it different is that it's a much smaller proportion of the population. If you go back and look at the Korean War, we had a population of about 150 million people. Four million of them were active duty members of the services. So, you know, upwards of 2% of the entire population. You look at the numbers now, obviously our population has grown. Our military has shrunken so that it's less than a quarter of 1% of all the people in the United States that are directly actively involved in the military. So it's it's really changed the uh, the complexion. The other thing, obviously, that's changed is the nature of the wars that we're fighting. Uh, you know, the, the Korean War was pretty much a conventional conflict, um, armies against armies. In Vietnam, that was less true. You know, you had the regular army from North Vietnam, but you had the Viet Cong, and there were uh, lots of uh, of more stealthy kinds of uh, attacks, but in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, that's even more. Um, the U.S. is fighting several different groups that have different agendas, uh, sometimes fight with each other, and more important, pretty much blend in with the civilian population most of the time, so that it's very difficult for people to get clarity about who they're fighting and what's going on, and they're at higher risk of sneak attacks and even these terrible um, attacks by people who are supposedly part of the military were assisting. So it's it's just a, a different uh, a different situation, and it, it's had a different effect on folks who are serving. Yeah, uh, you know what, and. and- Again, I, I want to ask you this question, but before I ask you this question, I want to set it up like this, and that is you have been specializing in disability law for those uh, seeking veterans' disability benefits for how long now? I've been doing this since 91. Okay. And do you have a an idea how the U.S. has historically treated our veterans? Well, it, it sort of depends on how far back you go, Bert. But um, <laughs> uh, the, the veterans uh, around the Revolutionary War didn't get treated particularly well. They, they did eventually get uh, some payments in, in script, which uh, a lot of them ended up selling to speculators to get actual cash. And then uh, there some other problems. But after... After the Civil War, from the Civil War forward, um, you probably remember Lincoln's uh, famous line about he was born the brunt of the battle. Um, they, the um, 
the government has made a real effort to uh, to try to help veterans, and it uh, kind of petered out after World War One. Um, veterans were promised a, a big uh, bonus payment to make up for the fact that they'd gotten pretty modest pay on the service, as opposed to what civilians had made at home. And unfortunately, uh, politicians being what they are, the uh, folks in Congress decided that they should pay that benefit in the future and not currently. So um, you had this ugly situation in the 30s where veterans marched on Washington asking to be paid their World War II, I'm sorry, their World War I benefits, <coughs> which were still being withheld. And the Army actually uh, ran them out of Washington, some 17,000 veterans who had marched on D.C. But after World War II, um, things improved a lot. The, uh, there were uh, folks who had been veterans who were in, the, in charge of the uh, veterans' uh, programs, and they pushed for what's then called the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, which created the GI Bill and, as you know, helped to uh, educate lots of people and, and really uh, contributed heavily to the middle class in the U.S. And the, uh, the uh, benefits that they got were quite uh, quite generous. Uh, unfortunately, when Vietnam came along, the GI Bill that was passed then was, uh, was much less generous. But um, after 9-11, and the uh, the uh, passage of the Authorization of Use of Military Force Act, um, Congress and the successive administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama and uh, the current president have all really pushed for benefits for for um, veterans for the global war on terror. And a couple of uh, senators who were were um, veterans themselves, uh, Jim Webb from Virginia and Chuck Hagel uh, from uh, Nebraska in particular, really pushed for benefits, and the current GI Bill really doubled uh, college benefits for veterans, uh, giving them a total of about $90,000 potentially, and provided a, a, a extension, a 13-week extension for uh, federal uh, Employment benefits for those folks, and so you have a situation where just the the um, GI Bill benefits alone, VA spent about ten billion dollars spread over seven hundred thousand beneficiaries of the of the GI Bill just in 2018. So you know, we're talking much bigger dollars than it used to be. Yeah, you know what shocks me, and and I, I never knew that. So so here you are, you're promised this stuff, these benefits. Uh, our politicians who didn't serve, uh, and I say that with confidence because uh, I don't think a veteran would do that to another veteran. But anyway, so we have the politicians who said, hey. <laughs> We had our fingers crossed. We're not going to give you that uh, those benefits. We're going to give them to somebody else in a future time. Um, and, and and then so the army is then called to run them out 
and it's it, it's it's just it just shocks me that <laughs> you know that our veterans had to uh, had to deal with that. Well, you you have to recall that was at the height of the depression, and and uh, it wasn't a wasn't a good time for anybody. But um, it it is uh, I think a sad chapter in our in our history of how we treated veterans. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. That that is just blows your mind. And and the uh, you know the, the, again, it's just one of those extreme examples that sometimes our veterans need help just to get their benefits that w- that was that were promised to them. Unfortunately, that's true. I mean, it's just, it just blows me away. All right, so so let's talk about this. Uh, Let's talk about the VA, the Veterans Administration. How is that structured, and what is it they're supposed to do? Well, the VA, um, you know, used to be this kind of quiet little agency, but in uh, 1988, because it had grown so, they they made it a cabinet-level department, uh, like uh, education or health and welfare or whatever. Um, It has a, a cabinet secretary, and... It's responsible for providing benefits for uh, veterans in in basically three parts. There's the Veterans Health Administration, which runs the healthcare side. The Veterans Benefits Administration, which uh, handles disability compensation and disability pension and educational benefits. And then the National Cemetery Administration, which... um, handles the the cemeteries, uh, the the famous one at Arlington and the various national cemeteries around the country. Um, And what has really happened here is that since 9-11 and the ongoing war on terror, um, the the VA has just grown in leaps and bounds. In in fiscal year 2001, total VA budget was $45 billion dollars. And that's no small amount of money. We're talking billions, not millions, but it was 45. Wow. By the end of, by the, end of the George Bush administration, with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, they grown to $85 billion. And under President Obama, as those people came back and, and needed treatment and benefits, uh, the VA's budget jumped to $180, million, $180 billion, excuse me. And since... Uh, President Trump has taken office. It's grown by another forty billion. So, the the budget, the VA budget for 2020 is 220 billion dollars. It's the second largest government agency behind only the Department of Defense. And you know, you think about uh, that, and it's in some ways sort of curious because the overall number of veterans in the United States has been declining because the Veterans from World War II and Korea and Vietnam are getting older and, and dying off. But the number of veterans receiving health care has increased, uh, and that's due to a bunch of different things, but it's, it's partly due to the increased coverage that uh, Congress has provided for those exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam, and those are fairly significant numbers. And it's also because, uh, as you know, the the uh, median age has uh, has increased, so we've got people who are living longer, 
But if you break that budget down, it's uh, $97 billion in discretionary funding, and the other 123 is in mandatory funding. And the, the health care part is, the, the, is in the discretionary budget and accounts for about $80 billion, uh, or about 40% of the VA budget. Um, and the, the rest is primarily um, either the benefits administration operations, meaning the, the people that work there and do the work, or the benefits that are actually paid out. Um, but you have to think about the VA is, is, has really become this huge operation. It has about 370,000 employees, provides medical services to about 9 million veterans a year, maintains 172 medical centers and another 1,200 clinics and various other healthcare facilities, the largest hospital system in the country. And that's in addition to handling the education funding, disability compensation, managing the cemeteries, and so on. And, you know, you and I have talked about some of the problems that the VA has had. It's like any big government bureaucracy. It's, it's hard to manage, and it has its problems. But, you know, a lot of the problems that the VA has aren't really of its own making. Um, there's been a, a lot of turmoil at the top. There have been four different secretaries in seven years, which is, you know, not really good for continuity management. It has lots of vacancies, uh, about um, 33,000 job vacancies at the moment, including a lot of senior staff positions and a lot of difficulty retaining employees given the, the president's uh, pay freeze and his you know, pretty general obvious uh, antagonism toward bureaucrats in general. But the, uh, the other problems include the, the infrastructure. You and I have talked about the difficulty the VA is having moving into the computer age, literally transitioning from paper files to computer systems. Right. And, yeah, and the difficulties it's had in moving from its own uh, healthcare record system to a uh, integrated system that they're trying to make work with the uh, Department of Defense so that uh, records will flow smoothly from service in the military on to the VA. And I have to say that that does seem to be making some progress. Nobody nobody knows for sure if it's going to roll out perfectly, but they, they've got the, the model up and they're instituting it and so far so good. But, you know, there's a there are a lot of things going on. Um, when there's this much money at stake, as you can imagine, the VA has become something of a political football. And one of the big issues is that there are conservative groups that are trying hard to get the government out of the healthcare business and uh, charter that all out to uh, private activities, private uh, entities to run. And so there's been a lot of fuss about whether the, the VA can actually provide good care. Congress established a 15-member a commission on care back in 2015, and they've, um, they've looked hard at it. And the, uh, it's interesting. They, they've identified several what they call myths about um, VA care. Um, 
is that uh, the eligibility process is uh, is too slow because of the VA bureaucrats. But the the commission points out that in fact the restrictions that slow down access to VA healthcare are primarily restrictions in the law about eligibility, having to do with either um, income eligibility or uh, being a veteran with a disability that is directly connected to the need for medical care in this particular case. And they uh, they also point out that while there have been issues with VA wait times for health care, all the wait times are generally shorter than those in the private sector for both new, new patient primary care or specialty care, urgent care. And a, a third thing they point out is that the quality of care overall, and there are exceptions, believe me, but overall, the quality of care delivered by the VA is generally as good as or better than that in the private sector. And in particular, the VA has developed a, a real expertise in behavioral mental health treatment, which simply is not uh, available generally outside the VA system. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> My cold is coming back to bite me. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of discussion right now about where everything should, uh, should go in terms, of, uh, in terms of the VA. Yeah, you know what? It's, uh, it's sometimes overwhelming when, you know, some of those numbers you threw out there, it's just – it's, it staggers the mind. It's hard to comprehend the size and scope of the numbers you're talking about. It's, it's just so friggin' big, uh, and people don't get that. It, it, it's not, you know, it's like, uh, uh, what do you call it, trying to steer the, uh, a cruise ship with an oar. It's, it's a very difficult thing to maneuver. That's for sure. It, it really is, you know, it's it's like a super tanker. You can't turn it on a dime. No, no. Okay, so let me ask you this, because th- th- there seems to be so much going on there in the VA. In your opinion, what influences VA policy? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, there, there have been some, some real changes. Traditionally, the... Uh, uh, Groups that have, have influenced uh, federal policy on uh, veterans I have been the, the veterans organizations. Uh, the big four have been uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars, which was founded in 1899 after the Spanish-American War. That has about, uh, about a million and a half members. And you got the American Legion, which was founded in World War I, uh, or after World War I, got about a million members. You have disabled American veterans, which also has about a million veterans. You got the Iraq and Afghan veterans of America, um, AVA, was founded in 2004, which now has about 400,000 members. Um, and so those have been the big players. But in the last few years, um, two others have come on the scene. Um, and there's a group called Vote Vets, which was founded in 2006. Uh, which has about 600,000 supporters. Then there's this interesting group called the Concerned Veterans of America, 
uh, which was founded in 2011. Uh, at, at that time, it was called the Nets for Economic Freedom Trust, and they don't say anything about their membership, but um, they uh, uh, spent a lot of money over the last few years on political campaigns. Um, and the, the uh, these different groups you know, really have, are sort of the major lobbying groups, if you will, that, that impact veterans' affairs. Um, and with the exception of the Concerned Veterans of America, um, pretty much all these folks are on the same page. They're opposed to privatization of health care, the increases in the VA's budget to continue to accommodate the growing numbers of uh, veterans, particularly wounded veterans. Uh, they want to see more funding for suicide prevention, more funding for homeless veterans, more funding for women's health care. The, uh, the other two groups, the Vote Vets and the CVA, um, their agenda is quite different. Uh, Vote Vets in particular, uh, as well as CVA, are focused on ending the, uh, the Middle East wars. That's their, their uh, big focus, if you will. Agenda, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's their agenda. The, uh, the CBA, on the other hand, um, they, they want to uh, end wars, but they also want to privatize the VA, and they're heavy into reducing the national debt by reducing uh, the so-called safety net programs, Social Security, Medicare, and veterans benefits. So um, it's uh, it's an interesting mix. And other than the CBA, um, none of them spends a lot of money on lobbying. Um, most of them spend between uh, in a hundred thousand a year on lobbying, which is not a big number when you when you look at get spent on lobbying in the U.S., but the CBA, on the other hand, they have put um, $52 million into supporting various political campaigns and legislative proposals. Um, in, uh, in 2018, for example, they spent about 400000 supporting Republican candidates that they thought would support privatization and, uh, and that sort of thing. They've... Uh, they have uh, gotten their money a little differently. Most of the uh, the others get their money from memberships and uh, direct fundraising. And the CBA has gotten a lot of money from groups like the Koch brothers, um, who are, as you know, uh, fairly conservative folks who uh, are pushing the privatization agenda, pushing to reduce the military, producing, pushing to reduce government as a as a as a group. As a group. Right. We've got these different kind of um, pushing back and forth, and it's uh, it's hard to tell exactly where it's all going to go. But as you know, this is an election year, and um, so the whole issue of uh, veterans and veterans' benefits has has really become a political uh, football this year. Well, because it is a political year, I'm I'm sure that we'll get all sorts of promises. Uh, and uh, and then of course you know <laughs> uh, some of those promises may not get fulfilled as in times past. 
So let me ask you this. Uh, again, based on your experience and, and uh, your involvement with, you know, veterans' disabilities, what are the issues for the future of the VA? I mean, is it, is it uh, you know what, I'll just be quiet and I'll just, you know, let you answer the question. <laughs> okay. First, uh, I, I think probably the biggest issue is this fight over privatization. As as you know, the, the current administration, as a as as a as an overall approach, uh, wants to reduce government and um, things run pretty much by uh, uh, private enterprise and not uh, direct government action. And so. Probably the, the single biggest battleground is going to be privatization of, uh, of VA healthcare, and it's it's interesting. Um, we've had some recent legislation. The, the first it was the Choice Act, and, and then the more recent act, um, which allowed <coughs> excuse me allowed veterans uh, some greater options in getting care outside the VA. But the interesting part is that. Um, those uh, programs run by private medical carriers have not really done particularly well. Uh, lots of, uh, of veterans have actually gone back to direct care at the VA, uh, un unhappy with, the, with these uh, with the private care that was uh, that was being provided, and. So the whole issue about privatization is is really really up in the air. It's uh, this 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 strong political uh, bent from the current administration. Who knows what will happen in the election and where that will take us? But uh, that's probably the biggest issue. The the other issues are are I think fairly straightforward. Um, even though the VA already has a huge budget, uh, we, we talked about 420 billion dollars. Just five times its 2001 budget. Uh, as we continue to uh, return more and more surviving wounded veterans to the U.S., it's probably going to need to increase uh, to keep pace with the with the demand for health care, uh, as well as the uh, the demand for disability benefits. And so um, that's obviously going to be uh, another political football. As you can appreciate, Congress hates things where money is dedicated and they have really very little flexibility in how it's spent. Just one of the reasons that the it's about Social Security and Medicare and other block programs. But um, since we, we continue to create more veterans with Healthcare needs. Uh, the budget's going to need to continue to expand to meet that need. And one of the real problems that I think we really failed in the current administration is the need for serious leadership at the VA. Um, it looked promising at, at the start. President Trump carried over David Shulkin, who was the number two in the Veterans Health Administration, and uh, a guy who was at least very determined to do good things for VA healthcare, and as you know he's been pushed out in the, uh, the infamous tweet, um, and we now have uh, a gentleman who is 
background is uh, primarily uh, Republican uh, political service, Mr. Wilkie, and he doesn't seem to be uh, providing very strong leadership for the issues that uh, are facing the VA, as far as I can tell. But, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't deal with him day to day in the Washington setting, so I, I may be unduly harsh, but I, I'm not, I've not been impressed to this point. I am hopeful that we, under whatever the next administration is, um, whether it's a continuation of the present one or a replacement, uh, we'll get a, a real serious appointee. Harry um, Truman uh, started the VA off after World War II with uh, General Omar Bradley, who was a famous uh, World War II general and, and uh, did a very impressive job uh, whipping the VA into, uh, into line to deal with all the post-World War II challenges. And President Obama appointed uh, General Shinseki, who was a former Army Chief of Staff and a wounded Vietnam War veteran himself. Um, so you know, there have been some pretty, pretty serious people running the VA, and it's been difficult for them. I'm hopeful that uh, we'll at least continue to get serious people because it's a, it's a real challenge given the scope of the, the operation, the number of employees, and the sheer political uh, pressure that uh, its, its size and the issues generate. And, you know, the other, the other issues kind of, uh, I think, are fairly fairly obvious. Um, as women make up a, uh, a much larger uh, share of military personnel than they used to, there's a real need for more specialized uh, care for women, um, particularly in the, uh, in the realm of uh, sexual assault and harassment, and how to deal with those things. Uh, obviously, uh, as you know from the news, uh, American views on those things are changing. We all just saw Harvey Weinstein uh, be uh, convicted in the federal court, a, a setting that many people would never have believed could occur uh, five years ago, even two years ago. So that whole issue is uh, is kind of working its way up through. And one of the other problems that, that the VA faces and hasn't really come to terms with is the use of reserve and National Guard units by, by constantly deploying those folks and then essentially demobilizing them to civilian status. They don't get the same military health care that uh, regular troops do. And they also um, don't get the same benefits in terms of uh, disability compensation. There are a lot of presumptions that are applicable to folks in active duty military service that don't apply to Guard and Reserve units. Uh, and so those folks uh, get the short end, if you will, in terms of uh, benefits. So it's a it's an ongoing issue, and you know it's it's hard to see where this is all going to go in a time when we've got all this uh, political focus on the VA and the, a, a certainly a, a very strong determination, at least in the Senate as currently constituted, to try to spend less money, um, more money, 
to meet these needs. So it's it's going to be an interesting few years in terms of where all these issues go. Yeah, and you know what, and and uh, as we've seen, you know, you mentioned the leadership there. Uh, it, you hit the nail right on the head. It's such a it is such a uh, a tough post to be on, and, and you, you have the pressures of running a very large company slash healthcare slash education service, and then on top of that, every you know not every but a lot of politicians, uh, you know, use you as target practice. Yeah. So, man, it, it's it's complicated, and so uh, yeah, let's hope that uh, these guys will uh, I don't know will do a better job. Uh, as always, Francis, it's it's wonderful to have you on the show, and I'm so grateful that that uh, you're out there protecting our brave men and women. If somebody's listening right now, do not do not suffer in silence. Uh, check out veterans. Benefits.com, veteransbenefits.com. Francis and his team will take care of you, answer your questions, point you in the right direction. Uh, Francis Jackson, thank you so much for stopping by. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. All righty. Thank you. Good stuff there from Francis Jackson, uh, a, a lawyer dedicated to helping you with your veterans disability benefits as well as your social social security disability benefits. So if you have questions for either one, you know, uh, check them out at veteransbenefits.com and uh, their uh, team will, uh, like I said, help you out, sort things out, give you a second opinion. And even if you've been denied, let's get a second opinion. It doesn't cost you anything. Let's share this episode with everyone, you know, let's help as many people, Stop suffering. Get the help they need. As always, my friends, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your uh, your help. And uh, remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.